0: Good morning. How are you all? I was a bit worried how many were going to be here this morning, what was size well in the storm, but yeah, you made up the numbers pretty well, so that's really good. It's a strange thing really about preparing something. I, I, Teresa heard this last week, but it just came to my mind this morning. I was at Brundle last week and I was telling him that as I was preparing the sermon, I was sitting in the living room reading over my notes. And that Saturday, we had taken two of my grandchildren out. One of them had a birthday and wanted to go to build a bear in the uh, chapel field. And so we went, and they had a special offer on if you bought a second one. And so she said, let's get, you know, her cousin uh, a bear as well, B. I said, okay, fine. So we got them both one. And we took them home, and I was reading through my notes. And as I was looking through them, they came over and said, what are you doing? I said, at that time, I was talking about the Thessalonians and Paul speaking to the Thessalonians. And I said, well, I'm talking about Paul and the Thessalonians and what he says to them. They said, well, what's it all about? So I got the two bears and I said, well, this is Paul and these are the Thessalonians. And I started to tell them in as easy a way as I could about what was going on. And just then the youngest one walked off. I said, what's the matter? She said, that's really boring. (laughs) And every time now I start to prepare a sermon, I think, I wonder if they would think it was boring. You know, and then will everybody else think it's boring as well? I don't know. I hope not, because it's the Word of God. So the reality is, it can't be boring. I might be boring, but it cannot be boring. Nothing in the Scriptures can be boring. Anyway, as I started to look at this particular passage, I was drawn to it by a particular phrase. And I'm going to come back to this phrase on one or two other occasions. And the phrase is really this. When I say a phrase, there's a couple of words. No compromise. No compromise compromise and if you're wondering what it's all about hopefully it will become clear but that word compromise and indeed the two words together no compromise has been a theme that's been running around in my head and in my mind for some months in fact probably longer than that maybe for the last two years what does that mean to me what does it mean to my life as a Christian no compromise so everything I seem to be looking at in the morning seems to be drawing to that No compromise. But I want to start off just uh, telling you a little story. It is a very short story, and it's one that I picked up from a book which um, by a guy called Max Lucado. Some of you may have read his books. He's a very popular Christian author. I can't say I've read many. Um, I've got to be honest with you, his style of writing doesn't appeal to me that much. But Teresa loves his writing. I know many others do as well. So it's a matter of preference. But then, then again, I would never criticize anything about him. But this one particular story in a book called Six Hours, One Friday, which you can imagine from the title, Six Hours, One Friday. It must be about Good Friday. And indeed it is. But there's a little story he tells in there which goes like this he was down in the caribbean and um, he was on holiday and they'd hired a boat but they heard that a storm a hurricane in fact was actually coming along and he was told that there was nowhere safe on this small island for him to harbor he would have to stay on his boat and you can imagine the concern and the worry that caused them so he was walking along the front and he came across the fisherman a local guy and he said to them, look, I'm in real problems here. What am I going to do? So the fisherman said to him, well, what you need to do is to go out to slightly deeper water. And Max the de thought, deeper water? That sounds even more dangerous than being in the harbor, deeper water. He said, well, why would I do that? He said, hold on. He said, let me tell you the rest of it. He said, what you need to do is to go down to the local chandlery and get two more anchors because your boat's got two on it already. Am I right? And he went, yes, you are. He said, I want you to get four anchors. He said, the two you've got are at the back. I want you to attach these to the rails at the front and drop them so that you're actually anchored in four places on the boat, and that will keep you safe. Now, he had no other choice. In a sense, there was nowhere else for him to go. He didn't know the waters that well. He'd never been through a hurricane. So what should he do? Well, he did what you'd expect. He took the advice of the local person. He'd been through these things before, and he duly got the extra anchors. He took his boat out to slightly deeper water. He anchored the boat on four sides. The hurricane came and went, and the boat was preserved, and he was safe. Great story, isn't it? Great story. And it made me think, first off, what came into my mind was the old hymn, Will Your Anchor Hold? I thought you might have even chosen that one this morning, Paul, but you're not as old as me, are you? You (laughs) You're older, are you? When the anchor, will my anchor hold? But what it made me really think about was this. We all need anchors in our life. What's yours? When the storms are raging, when life gets tough, when things are going wrong, and you look around you and you're in despair and you just don't know which way to turn, what anchors you? What holds you in place and gives you security, safety, Well, I hope it's your faith. I really do. I hope it's your faith. We need our anchor. We need our faith. But that faith, which is our anchor, needs to be anchored in something. Something strong, something secure. So what do we find that's strong enough that we can anchor our faith when the storms of life are actually raging around us? Where do we take it? Where do we take it? When Peter wrote this letter, things were actually changing in the church. I know it was the early days of the church. The letter was written in around the 60 AD period. But the church was changing. You have the church as it started off. It was in its infancy. And as we say from the, the last days of Jesus the people who were more worried about it were the Jewish authorities. The Romans weren't too concerned. But over a period of time, as the faith started to spread and to grow, the Roman authorities became quite worried about it as well. And they began to make things hard for Christians, persecute the Christians to some degree. It was still early days yet. And Paul, sorry, Peter, in his wisdom, realized that the people needed some guidance. He needed to be told something that would help them, because he came across people who were worried. What's going to happen to us? Where am I going to turn to? What are the authorities going to do? And no people were saying, have faith, have faith, have faith. You've been told that so many times, haven't you? Have faith, have faith. And we have faith. But how do we think about it beyond that? So he decided that he would write this letter. And for me, I have to say, I love Peter. He's one of my favorite. He is my favorite character apart from Jesus in the whole of the Bible. I absolutely love the guy. I love the fact he's got so many failings, so many faults. He gets it wrong so often. I feel like I'm, uh, something about that man that I can relate to. But he was also a wise man and became wiser still as he got older. Wise in the faith. And people look up to him. One, because he was a disciple of Jesus. But also because he was a man of wisdom. And a man that people could rely upon. So he wrote this letter. And I actually think this first uh, chapter is not easy to read. I didn't find it easy to read. Maybe you didn't find it easy to follow. And it's unlike Peter, because often his words are quite simple. He was a simple man, after all. But these words, and some people actually say, were they really written by Peter? Because they seem more as if they were Paul's words. If you read Roman, he writes in a similar, similar style as what we find in Romans. But the historians say, no, this is Peter. And what Peter was finding that he needed to write to people because they were finding it increasingly difficult. And the message he needed to give them was this. Do not compromise your faith. You may be persecuted. You may have people coming down on you. You may have people actually saying, deny your faith and we'll leave you alone. Do not compromise your faith. And that's the essence of this. But he needed to give them more he needed to give them something that would help them trust and understand why that faith was so important. And it needed to be embedded in something they could rely upon. And that's what this letter is all about. This letter comes from this book. How many people here agree with me this is the Word of God? Yeah, it is the Word of God. It tells us how to live our lives, it helps us in times of trouble. This letter that we're going to look at this morning briefly helps us in those times. But as with anything that's in the Bible, I believe more than ever before, there's no compromise on it. Even though it might be tough to follow this word, it might be tough to actually understand it. It might be tough to live our faith out through the word. More and more as I get older, I realize there cannot be any compromise. And I'm sure of that. And Peter was sure of it, and that's what he wanted to tell people. Be sure of your faith. Be sure that it can be anchored in something that is powerful, strong, and everlasting. But do not compromise it. Do not compromise it. So let's have a little look at this if we can. If you've got your Bibles with you, that would be great if you could turn to them. If it's not, don't worry. Just a little bit of background. I already said this was written about 60 AD, around that period, and people are pretty sure about that. Peter died in around 67 to 68, so it had to be written before that. And he knows some things here about Paul's letters, Ephesians and Colossians, were written before. So if you look at when Ephesians and Colossians were written, and you look at his death, it has to be in that 60 period, that 64, 65 AD. He talks about, right at the very end, if you look at 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 13, that the letter was written, as he calls it, from Babylon. And there's a lot of dispute about where he was at that particular time and why he called it Babylon. I did a little bit of research, found out there was the Babylon that we know about in Mesopotamia. There was also a place called Babylon down in Egypt, which is like a military outpost. But there's not really a lot of evidence that he went there. So most historians think he calls it Babylon because he's actually in Rome. And like Babylon, Rome has become a place of corruption, idolatry, sexual immorality, and all of the other things that we can associate with Babylon at its worst. So he calls it, I'm in Babylon. But there he is, as I said, the historians believe in Rome. And he's feeling as if time is really pressing on him. And he hasn't got long left, and he writes these two letters. But let's have a look at the letters themselves, because I think it's so, so interesting when you actually look at the beginning, let alone uh, some of the things I want to cover in a moment. In chapter 1, he says, to God's elect, strangers in the world scattered throughout. I find that very intriguing because very often he writes directly to the church, to people in a church, but here he writes to everybody. God's elect, you and me, scattered all around the world. This is not a letter just to one particular church, one group of people, or even one person. This is to all of us. And I've heard people sometimes say, oh, well, that In this idea that we will remain in in a situation of no compromise, we're challenged sometimes in life to say, oh, well, uh, we've got this particular issue in life that we're challenged by. Uh, Let's look what the Bible says. And the Bible looks in there and it says in Corinthians, or it says in Romans, or it says in Thessalonians or Ephesians. Oh, well, of course, that letter was written to those people in those times. And it can bring us to a point of Compromise. Oh, well, the Bible says this, but we're not very comfortable with that because we live in these times, not in those times. So what we do and what the church does, I have to say, is find a slightly different interpretation, one that fits maybe a worldview, one that takes us away from what the Word of God, the truth, is actually saying, and we compromise. Have you done it? I have. I've done it in recent days. I've done it about issues in the church that we faced. I've done it about issues in life. I've looked up to find a way forward and found a passage in one of these letters and thought to myself, and I've talked to other people, and they've said, well, of course, that was written for then, wasn't it? That was written for then. We can interpret that slightly differently. And I've gone along with it. But God is moving me in a direction where I actually believe now, with all my heart and with all my soul, there is no compromise. I'm sorry if you don't like to hear that, but I can only preach what God's laying on my heart. There is no compromise. And the more we compromise the truth of God, the more we move away from God and into the world. And then what are we? Are we what he wants us to be? No. The further we move away from God, the less like God we become, the less like Christ we become. The more we compromise, the less I feel we can call ourselves Christians. So when we read these scriptures, we have to take them as truth, I believe. As the word of God, with no compromise. As difficult as that may be for us as individuals, as difficult as that may be for us in the world, with our families, with our friends, with loved ones, with our neighbors, who will have a different view, and even other Christians who will give it a different interpretation because it suits a worldview. You're looking at me, some of you, in sort of rather shocked look. Maybe because when I normally get up here, I have a good laugh most of the time, make jokes about things, have some fun. At this moment in time, I still like to do that, but I really feel this morning God has laid on my heart a serious, serious message for churches for this church, for you, for me. There is no compromise. And I do believe, and I'm sorry that everybody's not here, that there is a time when we're going to have to face certain issues that even our own church is compromised over. Viewpoints that we may have about how we function, where we are compromised. Compromised. And that will hold us back, achieving the potential that God has for us. Just have a look as he talks further on in that uh, particular opening bit in verse 2, right at the end. Grace and peace be yours in abundance. These words are used at the beginning and the ending of most letters that you'll find in the scriptures. Grace and peace. And we look at them, and I'm going to be honest about it, I think we just sail past them very often and dismiss them. Oh, well, that's the opening. That's what you expect people to say. And at the end, well, that's what you expect people to say. But God has laid on my heart that these are more profound than that. These are very, very important words that send a message out to us. When I say no compromise and we look at that, it says grace and peace. What is grace? Grace is what God pours out on us to be the people that we want. He meant us to be. He meant us to be. And what guide do we have to become the people that he meant us to be? This. And to follow this and have his grace to be the people that we are meant to be, there has to be no compromise. At the end of this morning, you're going to be fed up with me saying it. When God pours out his grace on us, it is so that we can become the people that he created to be. We, Our names are written in the book at the beginning of time. We are the elect. We've been called by God to be the people that he created us to be. To do that, we need his grace. And when that grace comes down on us, he expects us to conform to who he created us to be. And this is what he gives us to help us to do that, to move to one degree to another as we go through our lives with no compromise. And if we compromise that grace, to be honest, we're taking the mickey at it. And he also says, peace. Peace be yours in abundance. What does that peace mean? Well, what it doesn't mean is that everything's nice and quiet. I've got my grandchildren coming for lunch today, and uh, there's three of them and my, and my children. Our house will be a little bit chaotic around about 3 o'clock for 3 or 4 hours. And when they leave, we'll clear up and we'll, oh, we'll have had a great time. And as they go, we'll make a cup of tea and we go, Peace. Peace many of you experience it, I'm sure. There's that wonderful peace you can get when you're walking in a park and all you can hear is the birds sing. Wonderful peace that you get when you're walking down on the seashore and and the, the water is lapping and you're all on your own. And you feel like it's just you and God, don't you? But you know, the peace that God is talking about is not those things. What it is, is that He will dwell in you, you will dwell in him, and spiritually, you will be at peace. Spiritually. Not just that you can't hear lots of noise around you, or there's not people running around and causing chaos. It's a deeper peace than that. Even that's not there. Bless him. Somebody wanted their mum. Do we cry out like that when we're away from God? Do we cry out to be closer to him, like that child wants to be closer to their mum? I don't know. We should. We should. Because the closer we are to God, the more peace we will experience, the more grace will be poured out on us, and the more we will become the person he created us to be. Is that what you want to be? That's the question you have to ask. Is that what you want to be? Do you want to be the child of God, the woman of God, the man of God that he created to be? Or do you want to be something else? And what Peter says is that you must keep your faith. Keep it strong. And he gives us plenty of guidance in this passage and where to do it. He talks about a timeless faith. A faith which can't perish. In verses uh, 4 and 5. Is your faith like that? You think, well, we have got faith. I'll tell you something, shall I? Everybody's got faith. Everyone. Your neighbours, your friends, even if they don't know Jesus Christ, they have got faith. The atheist has faith. He has faith that there is no God. But what's his faith placed in? His faith is placed in his intellect, which is flawed, because all of our intellects are flawed to some degree, because we're not perfect. But the atheist places his faith in his intellect, anchors it in his intellect. And that says to him, there is no God. How do I know that? Because I think, therefore I am, and therefore that's what it is. That's that's the faith. People put faith in abilities, in skills, connections, friends, family, philosophers, money. You see it in the world, don't you? Their faith is anchored in these things. Anchored in these things. I heard a story the other day that surprised me and puzzled me. I was talking to a very um, strong Christian man I know over coffee, and he was telling me a story about somebody he met, and this person hadn't been a Christian very long, and he said to, they were chatting away, and this person said, "Um, by the way, he said, I'm going to read my Bible from start to finish, and my friend went, are you really, he said, that's really great, he said, have you started yet, no, he said, I haven't started yet, I'm going to start next January. And he said, why not start now, brother? And you know what he said? I can't start at the moment. I don't feel I'm not in the right place. He said, what do you mean you're not in the right place? He said, I'm not in the right place to give everything I've got to that. And he said, why? He said, well, I haven't got very much money in the bank. I need to concentrate this year on earning enough money to get my savings account up. Once I've got my savings account up, I'll feel more secure and more safe. And then I'll feel I'll have more time because I'm less anxious and stressed to spend reading the Bible. And then I'm going to start. And he told me this story, he said, what do you think? I felt rather sad, to be honest. I'm gonna wait a year to read my Bible, and before I can read it, before I can give the time to it, I've gotta have enough money in the bank. Where is your faith? Now, I don't wanna be critical of a fellow brother, I just don't, but it's a strange place to be. And I wonder, for him, if it's the best place to be. Faith in the money before faith in his faith to read the Bible. And learn. Our faith must also be uncorrupted. Uncorrupted. That's where the no compromise comes in. An uncorrupted faith. You've probably heard the phrase many, many times about absolute power. And you've heard the, way, the extension of it absolute power corrupts. I've come across people outside the church and inside the church whose ambition is power and influence. We have been blessed over the last number of years with a man as our pastor who had none of that. Power wasn't his game, nor was influence. What he had was the humble heart of God. And all he wanted was the best for us. He wanted to see God's grace materialize in our life so we could be the best of who God created us to be. And he put himself last, not first. Is he corruptible? Of course he's corruptible. He's a human being. He's a man. We're all corruptible. But through his faith, through his faith and his actions and following God, he was able to fight off Satan's influence when it came about. And I'm sure it did come about to corrupt him that power was everything. It's a lesson to be learned there, isn't there? When we actually look for our next minister, I think the question to be asked is, What do you put first? The shepherding role of the people or the position of pastor? Which comes first with you? I know what the answer needs to be. Power can corrupt. Our faith has to be a faith which is not corrupted. Not corrupted by the world, not corrupted by false teaching, not corrupted by people who would take the word that's in here and turn it into something different because it suits them. Do you do that? I do. I have done it. And God's calling on me to put my life straight, to get it in line with where it needs to be. Some of you know me well. You might think, "Well, Chris is okay. He's a good Christian. He, you know, I, I've heard him speak. I've seen how he is with people." Yeah, that's all true of me. What you see is what you get. But I'm not perfect, and none of you are. There are elements of my life I need to get sorted that still need working on. If we move into the next section in there, where we get chapter uh, verses six. Excuse me while I just turn this page for a second. Verses 6 to 8. It talks about having a tested faith. He talks in there about the refining. How much do you know about the refinement of gold? Gold is the most precious metal we have in the world because we decided it's going to be. But even in the scriptures it's seen that way, is it not? Gold is precious. Gold is a precious metal. And here he talks about the refiner's fire. I was reading up on this. When you look at people who refine gold, what they do is they heat it up, but then what happens through that heat is the impurities in the gold rise to the surface, and they skim it off, and it goes through that process again and again and again, till all the impurities are out. And what they hope to see, to know that it's pure gold, is their face reflected in that gold, then they know they've got there. I was amazed at that. I didn't realize that. But it suddenly made sense when we talk about the refiner's fire and what Peter is talking about us and our faith here. It needs to be refined. It needs to be tested. That's what life is doing. That's what God does to us sometimes. Do you know, I've heard people say God does not test us. I don't believe that. God doesn't test you. He wants the best for you. He does want the best for us. But there are times when we're allowed to be tested and God allows it to happen. And why does he allow it to happen? Because the testing is like the refiner's fire. It's drawing out the impurities from us. Drawing out the impurities. Our life is all about that. Will we ever be pure? One day we will. Because we will be with Jesus forever. We'll we'll be a new creation. But now we're not. And while we draw breath on this earth, we will never be pure entirely. Because we are of sin. But what we're going through is a process. We're getting nearer and nearer. Hopefully, if you allow him to refine you. If you do not allow your faith to be corrupted, that refining process will take you through a process where, as the impurities are taken out of your life, as you begin to change, as you begin to become more like Christ, when you look down in that gold... What you will see is the face of Christ. Because you're becoming more and more like him. Isn't that what you want? That's what I want. I want to be more and more like Christ. But for that to happen, I've got to allow myself to be tested. I've got to allow myself to be refined. Even by the tough things in life which throw me and knock me about. And the challenges that people put to me, even my brothers and sisters put to me, when they question or ask me questions about what I'm doing or what I'm thinking or what, I'm, uh, what I believe, it's a refining process. And it's uncomfortable. But God says, don't compromise. Work towards the truth. Work towards him being more like Christ. Accept the refinement. No compromise. And over time you will become more like him. Peter talks here about your faith. Your faith needs to be a tested faith. It needs to be timeless and tested. And the final element I want to speak to you about, and I'm so glad I'll be finished before 12, like this, is a true faith. How true is your faith? Is it timeless? Does it stand up to the test of time? Has it been tested? Are you allowing it to be tested? So there's no compromise? And how true is it? You know, we sometimes look at people, don't we, and we say, well, yeah, it may work for you, but it doesn't work for me. I've said that. I've said that. I've said it recently. Said it over a particular issue. I'm not going to tell you what it is because I'm still working through it and I don't think it's right. But I had an interpretation of something in life, in the world And I'd used the scriptures, and I'd done exactly what I said I shouldn't do. I decided to take that, but put my own interpretation on it. And I developed a belief about this issue, and somebody challenged me recently. And they said, you know, Chris, I've got to say, if you look at the scriptures, I think you've got it wrong. And what was my reply to them? Well, that's okay for you. You see it your way, I see it mine. What works for you works for you. What I need is something that will work for me. And for a period of time, we have two Christian brothers walking side by side, still the best of friends, with an entirely different view of the truth of God because of a different interpretation. And I'm going to tell you now, I was in the wrong because I would not allow my faith to be tested. And I would not go back and look at the true meanings of the world. What I wanted is something, an interpretation that would help me lead my life to deal with that situation in an easy way. Easy for me. I compromised. Do you compromise? Every time I compromise, I'm kicking the grace of God in the teeth. Because I'm not becoming the person that he wanted me to be. And will I have peace? Not the peace I really long for and want. And why? Because I'm moving further and further away from God every time that happens. It's like one step forward, one step back if you're not careful. Rather than one step forward, one step forward, one step forward through the refining process. Is it a true faith? Is it a true faith? Have you ever thought about Christianity against some of the other faiths or some beliefs? Most belief systems, most philosophies, most faiths that you come across are based on an intellectual rationality. They're even created in the minds of people if you start to explore them in depth. Many of the other faiths, lots of philosophies. And when you actually start to look at them, you become aware that they're not really based on any foundation. On any foundation at all. As you start to trace them back, there is no sense to them. And I'm not here just to be critical of other faiths because I'm a Christian. I've explored these faiths. And I get to a certain point in time and I think, so what? That's just come out of the mind of one man. One person has decided this is how it's going to be. And they create a faith. I'll tell you one, which I'm quite happy to name at the moment. Scientology. A philosophy and a faith. Came out of the mind of one man. A guy called Hubbard. And now he's got people following him all over the world. He's dead now. But that religion, as they call it, that movement, whatever you want to call it, some call it a cult, is growing and attracting many people, often celebrities. You read about them. But it came out of the mind of one person. And if you argue it out and you dismantle it, if you could dismantle it totally and go back to it, it would disappear. Just disappear, because that one man There's nothing before that. There's no substance in it before that. It came out of the invention, the imagination of one man. Where's the foundation? Our faith is rooted in a foundation that goes right back to the very creation of the earth and the universe. You can test it. When I was down at Spurgeon's for a while, one of the things that I was taught and that has never left me was this. Everything in the Old Testament leads to Jesus. Everything before the Old Testament, in God's creation, leads to Jesus. Everything. It's tested from the beginning to the end. Alpha, omega. If you dismantle Christianity, if somebody could make it disappear, you couldn't create it again. You couldn't create it. Because you can't recreate all that history. Only God can do that. It's a true faith. It's a tested faith. It's a timeless faith. And that's what Peter is saying to the people when he writes this letter. Your faith needs to hold strong. You can be assured, and he proves it in this letter, that your faith is a timeless faith. It will never, ever disappear. It's stored like a treasure in heaven, it's sitting with God. You're in the book at the beginning and you'll be there at the end. It is timeless. It needs to be a tested faith. You will need to allow yourself in the time that you're on this earth to be tested by God and to allow, the, the, if you like, the storms, uh, the rough elements of the world to hit you and stand up holding fast with your faith. Let your faith anchor you like it did that boat for Max Licardo, And in that anchoring of your faith, You will come through the test. You'll be refined like the gold. And when you start to look down into that pot and the impurities disappear, each time you look into it more and more into that wonderful pot of gold, you will see Jesus appear. And that picture will get clearer and clearer and clearer. Because as you're refined, as you accept a life of no compromise, you will become more like Jesus. And that reflection will be that. I do not want to look in that pot and see Chris Cleary. Most people don't want to look and see Chris Cleary. I don't want to look in there. When I look in that pot of gold that's being refined, I want to see Jesus. And I want that to be my reflection. No compromise. And it's a true faith. I can can rely upon my faith. It was there at the beginning of time, and it will be there forever. And there is a history which makes sense, which works, which nobody can challenge, what they can do is misinterpret. And even we can do that. And I think that, for me, is the challenge. I offer it to you. As you examine your faith, maybe in the days ahead, where it is, do you believe that it's timeless? Are you prepared to have it tested and come through it so you become more and more like Jesus? Do you believe it's a truth faith that can never be taken from you? Only you can throw it away. But to do that, it's no compromise. No compromise. You may change. You may have to go up to people and say, I'm sorry, I've thought this through again. I've prayed it through. I've looked at the scriptures. I was wrong. God has told me, no, this is the truth. And the closer we are to the truth... The closer we are to the truth of this word, the more like Jesus we become. I'm in a rough place at the moment. I'm going to have to, t- and I am taking a hard look at some things that I believe. About life and how I work my Christianity out in the world. And I'm going to have to face up to people and say, you know what I used to believe about this? I don't anymore. And when I shared this with a good friend during the week, he said, and brother, be prepared. You could lose some friends. Because the Christian path is not an easy path. And not everybody wants to take it. Even some people in the church. I don't want to be one of those. I know many of you so well, and I know you don't. But it has to be a faith with no compromise. I'm sorry this is a bit maybe heavy-hitting to what I normally speak about when I'm speaking up here. But I believe God has laid it on my heart, and I can only speak the truth of what he's put on my heart. Just say it one more time, then I'll shut up and hand over to Paul. No compromise. No compromise. May God bless you. And I hope something of this morning will help you in your journey to become more like Christ. Amen.